Any chance you're headed to the uh, Hotel McDonald's for fun? I sure am. See you there. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, oh nice. Heather, you what feeling, are you, what you are feeling you? like an outsider, Heather? Well, maybe you should join the CBA. Like, what are you fancies doing at the Hotel Mac? How many times have I told you to join the CBA, Heather? Join the CBA. We can really use you in the small, solo, and general practice section. I thought I recognized your name from that. So you must have been at the presentation that we did for the Civil Collaborative Project. You know what? I... I feel like I went to that, I like attended because out of obligation, but I didn't love it. Okay. But not because of, it's just, I don't love collaborative law. Mm. I am not a convert. Okay. I have not yet been convinced. Not, still. not, not, yes, yeah, still Heather. Still. Only because of our conversations about your clients. Well, because I only, I only have, it's only two that I've had a hard time with. The rest have been amazing. It's, it's not that I have a problem with the concept. It's that I'm just not convinced that, I'm just not convinced yet. I'm not saying, I'm not saying I can't be convinced. No. I just, I'm just not yet. Well, maybe we're going to come back to this and we're going to try and convince you later in our conversation. Can I ask one question? I remain open to being convinced. I don't have, I'm, I'm not dogmatic. What's your biggest reservation? Um, so from the context of family law, I think um, litigation is a very helpful tool that should be used appropriately to help move things along if needed. Yeah. And I, I have concerns about the expenses of collaborative law when, especially when you factor in delays and then if it gets so unbearable to the point that someone's going to leave, that's when it's like yeah. max loss on that process. Yeah. Obviously, ideally it doesn't go that way, but yeah. But if it was ideal, would they really be calling us? No, they wouldn't right. need lawyers at all. They just be, everyone would be happy. Oh, that's a beautiful setup and launch conflict resolution. Welcome to Access to Justice. <laughs> Honestly, Evan, you just have to spend a week with me and you'll see how many people contact me for divorce that who are in litigation and how few people contact me on the collaborative side. Like the, I see the biggest, most like, like, horrendous situations coming from litigation because people don't know what's going on. Their lawyers aren't putting in the time or organizing them. Yeah. It's like, I can't even tell you how different these situations come to me. Like, it's just, it's unbelievable. Oh, don't get me wrong, Kim. I'm not like litigation is the way to do it. Uh, that's the worst. Uh, litigation is the worst. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very convinced of that. Um, like most of my family practice is spent in negotiation mm -hmm. and litigation is used as a stick to move it along when people don't want to move and it gets things done. There's that creates a hard deadline that, and sometimes it's super frustrating that people don't do anything until you've got this hard deadline. But I think that's partly human nature. And then like, on the court steps or the virtual court steps in the like, uh, WebEx, chat you resolve things so that you can adjourn to another day and you don't have to you know th that kind of thing happens all the time so yeah i'm with you people that start going down the road of litigation and thinking that that's going to solve their, that's the best way to solve their problems are they better be rich 
and they better not really worry about the outcome. They better be fine with whatever outcome comes their way. Cause it seems to me if you, if you rely on litigation as a primary resolution, like dispute resolution um, process, then you're going to spend a lot of money and have a lot of uncertainty and be unhappy generally. <laughs> love it. Love it. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. All that being said, I'm, I'm just not convinced that, uh, it's not that I like, obviously it has a place. There's lots of people that practice it, especially on the family side. And so I would think that there would be plenty of space on the commercial side as too, on, on the civil side, like businesses that can afford to litigate and do regularly. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't they be doing collaborative? So, I mean, I'm convinced of that. Yeah. But and they can uh, keep all their private information out of court, yeah, and court documents and court decisions, and get the resolution that they actually want. Mm -hmm. Well, like at least participate in, right? Yeah, not what have a say. The parameters of, of law and legal constructs, but actually structure stuff the way they want to structure it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think, and I think maybe it's a matter of, I think Susan's one of Paul used to say that like any family could be a collaborative file. And I don't know that I agree with that, or I don't know that I can guide just any family through a collaborative file. She probably could. But I think that part of the collaborative process that is important is taking out that power of litigation. I think that's an important element and it's like almost integral to it sometimes because there's a threat and often that amps up the power or increases the power imbalance on one side in a family. If you don't want to pay spousal support and you're the income earner and you have the resources and you're like, hmm, take me to court then. Like that's not, uh, that's not a fair fight. Right. Um, whereas if you take court out of that, then there's, it can start to, even the playing field. I think also collaborative lawyers need to be on top of their process. Like I think people need to be held accountable during the process as well and, and stick to deadlines. Cause you know, as well as I do, that court deadlines are often artificial as well. Right. Oh, of course. How many financial disclosure orders have you gotten for someone who doesn't want to provide their X, Y, or Z? I mean, that can go on forever for anybody who wants to be a tool, but anyway, we'll I'll get you convinced one day, Evan. Well, yeah, I, I, I shouldn't speak so uh, strongly <laughs> against it because I, I don't think, I really don't think it's fair. Like, I don't think my comments are really quite fair about collaborative law, but you haven't um, done it either. Right. Like you don't learn, yeah, football, you don't exactly. learn football until you play it. <laughs> exactly. It's pretty, it, it, you know, so in other words, my comments about collaborative law should be uh, given their due weight, which is somebody who's never done it. He's never done the training, never participated in the process. Is just kind of making things up on the side. <laughs> All right. Welcome to Access to Justice. I'm your host, Heather Malarik of Merrick Law. My co-host co co is Evan Clark of Kahay Law. Hi, Evan. How are you today? Hi, Heather. I'm, I'm good. Um, that was great. I'm going to leave that whole part in because I love it. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, um, it's it's like all of a sudden summer's here. It just seems like that here where just all of a sudden things happen, just like, you know, all of a sudden winter was here and all of a sudden summer's here. And it's, uh, it's very nice. I like it. But um, I was driving my car yesterday. We had these torrential downpours, right? And I was driving my little Civic. I've got a 94 Civic hatchback and I was driving it. And when I parked at work to get out, Actually, no, when I came out of the gym and put my bag in the back of the car, the floor was soaked. Like there was a puddle Uh-oh. on the floor. And I was like looking around, like it wasn't leaking from the front. It wasn't like that just happened while I was at the gym. So I was like, I, it came up from below the car and I just didn't notice it before because it was like a puddle. <laughs> so I guess the Civic is a sunshine only car, at least for a while. <laughs> 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 all right well a leaky a little bit of a leaky car yeah hey? how are you doing i'm well i've got a little bit of a cold so i think you know everybody's out and about with uh enjoying the summer time but uh i don't know i guess i got this cold somehow so we're all a little sniffly and a little uh a little tired but otherwise good yeah i've already been out camping a few times i'm also really enjoying summer yeah you have to. That's the thing. You got to enjoy it while it lasts. You gotta. You gotta. <laughs> um, well, without further ado, we're also joined today by our very special guest, Kim McDonald of McDonald Advisory. Kim's a financial advisor and insurance advisor with Raymond James. How are you doing, Kim? I feel like I'm not really having the smooth scenario that you're having yet. My wedding ring is still lost in my garden somewhere. And... <laughs> I, yeah, it's, it's somewhere. It's gotta be there somewhere. A client offered to give me a metal detector, but then one of his colleagues yoinked it from him. So I'm, I'm waiting on that hail, hail Mary, although I'm insured. So it's not the worst thing in the world, but I, I tore, I tore up my backyard because my garage was falling in. And then right when all the mud was just, you know, laid out, then the torrential rain wow. came down and now I've got a swimming pool in my backyard. <laughs> With your with your wedding ring in it somewhere. <laughs> wedding ring's in the front yard, and oh, the swimming okay. pool is in the backyard. Oh, so, no. like you know, I can't say anything's very tidy and going well over here. And the stock market's down. I mean, anybody watching this podcast, uh, today's date is what is it, June fourteenth uh, or something? Sixteenth. Sixteenth. I don't even know what date it is. So it's it's not going well on the work front either. I don't know where this the positive is going to come into play, but I'm hoping soon. <laughs> well, if you just need some little hands to go search through dirt for wedding rings, I got a lot of little hands over at my place. We can just walk down the block, start combing through that for you. Uh, that was like fun. Um, well, I'd also like to welcome our guest today, Paulette DeKelver. She's a repeat on Access to Justice. Yay! Welcome, Paulette. Welcome back, Paulette. How are you? I'm really well. Thank you. Really, really well. I don't uh, have a lost wedding ring or a swimming pool. Um, I was noticing the stock situation with some trepidation, trying to plan for the future and crossing your fingers and hoping for the best. Um, but I got to say, I'm totally into the sunshine and summertime. And we've got lots and lots of exciting camping uh, planned, including some pretty epic uh, backcountry stuff. So I'm pretty stoked about that. Nice. 
Nice. I we're taking our family out for our first backpacking trip this summer. My boys are like almost 10 and almost 12 and I'm I'm pretty excited to fill up their backpacks and get out in the woods. Where You've you been going? taking your boys for a long time, haven't you? Oh yeah. So they're 12 and 14 now and I think our first trip they were five and seven or six and eight. So yeah, we've been, I've been forced marching them for some time now. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Where are you going? Uh, my friend booked it up near Jasper, outside of Jasper, Whirlpool something. Oh, yeah. I'm not even sure. Nice. Yeah. 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 Very yeah. cool. Enjoy. Yeah. We're looking forward to it. I'm going to hold myself back because I could talk about backcountry camping literally for days and that's not why we're here. So I'm just going to oh, maybe we can do an episode on we can do an episode <laughs> on that one day. <laughs> okay, well, we are here. It's like a 180 almost, but to talk about conflict management in the workplace. So um, for any devout listeners, we uh, had a really great conversation with Paulette the first time she was here about just conflict in general and having tough conversations and that kind of thing. So um, we're so excited to have you back and sort of continue and expand on that conversation. Um, so my first question is, what is conflict management in the workplace? Well, thanks for having me back. Um, it's a real delight to, to be here and to be part of the conversation. And I just, I love this idea of taking concepts that can be um, a bit abstract and demystifying them and really using the law um, and some of the financial pieces of that as tools to be put into practice. And that's really how I look at conflict in the workplace and specifically conflict management. So I'm going to just sort of flip it back on its head a little bit and ask you people first, when you think of managing conflict in the workplace, what comes to mind? Well, I think about, so my part-time job is with the military. Mm. I immediately think about that because we train on this all the time. It doesn't mean the army is particularly good at it, mm -hmm. but we do do a lot of training on it. And so what I've learned in that sphere is, are things such principles, such as, you know, try to solve it at the lowest level possible. In other words, if possible, uh, you want to talk with the person that you have the conflict with, that's not always appropriate that sometimes that doesn't work because of an imbalance of power or the nature of the conflict. It depends, but where, where possible, always are at the lowest level uh, possible. If that's the manager, then that's still the lowest level possible. Then that's where you would want to do it. Um, and uh, I guess just the need to have structures or, or kind of reporting channels in place that aren't necessarily consistent with other uh, leadership stratification. That's kind of like a really abstract way to, to try and say what I'm trying to say. And I'm not just trying to sound fancy with big words. <laughs> uh, what I'm trying to say is when it comes to conflict, you, you, you want something that is like an, an easy route to, of who you need to talk to, to kind of get that process started. That isn't related to the, to who you report to for your job necessarily. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Those are really great examples. And um, you mentioned the military, which is interesting because uh, a lot of the work that I do in mediation, there are actually several mediators that do work specifically with um, D&D. And it's one of the biggest departments that has adopted mediation in a variety of different structures, which I got to tell you, when I got into the industry, kind of surprised me because I think military yeah, like there's a way of solving a conflict and it's kind of aggressive and violent, right? Um, so I did a complete 180 in, in my thinking. And so um, I'm actually not surprised to hear you say that there is a lot of training on conflict management in that particular department. And you've given some really great examples. Um, Kim, Heather, what comes to mind for you when you think of conflict management? I'm an an avoider, avoid conflict at all costs, even if things become comfortable, uncomfortable, I just avoid, (laughs) and which is the total wrong way to do it. But I have have a scenario where I see a bully of mine fairly often, and I, I, I ignore them and avoid them because I, I don't want to forgive them. And that, (laughs) that, I know how flawed that is, but. uh, Kim, I said, sorry. I just, I see them all the time and I just like, I, I, I duck and cover. I Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's, that shows a sign of low emotional intelligence. So I'm going to disagree with you. Avoiding is absolutely a conflict style. That's part of what we can do when we're dealing with conflict in the worst place is actually do like an inventory of what somebody's conflict styles are Um, and avoiding when conflict gets escalated before I started training, I was a hundred percent an avoider, which I was really surprised to learn about myself as somebody in litigation for 20 years. I was like, what? No, 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 no. I'm a fighter, not an avoider. (laughs) Turns out that for me, the rules of court was like, 700 pages on how to have a civil fight. Mm. I didn't actually have to deal with conflict, that emotion, right? So, um, and sometimes, Kim, avoiding is exactly the right option. So there's a place for that. But yeah, absolutely. Thanks for bringing up conflict styles. What about you, Heather? Yeah, um, I'm also an avoider by nature. The ostrich, I think, is the the bird they use as, uh, as an avian equivalent in on the on the conflict style uh, thing. So, uh, but what a fascinating insight that you had, like like rules of engagement, right, for conflict as a litigator, and like, but in other scenarios, you don't. But um, okay, to return to your question, conflict management in the workplace. I, you know, I don't have as this sophisticated take on it as Evan does. I think of like reporting to HR, going to the principal's office, getting in trouble, being written up, um, or just, yeah. I mean, that's kind of what comes to mind when I think of conflict in the workplace. The good news is you're all right. Those are all absolutely aspects of managing conflict in the workplace. It can span all the way from that first interaction where, um, you know, like you said, Evan, about um, talking to the person that you have the conflict with, all the way through to a more formal process. Heather, you mentioned, you know, getting written up. That's probably more maybe a discipline type of a a scenario. Um, But conflict management can include things like, filing official complaints, 
under respectful workplace policies or bullying and harassment policies. Um, in an organized or a union environment, uh, it can be filing a grievance. Or under occupational health and safety, there can be reports of violations, um, including now psychological safety. So those are all some pretty formal structures. Um, and you know, the last time we met, we talked about litigation and litigation alternatives. And those are all tending more to that kind of formal complaint, claim rights-based model. The way I've been dealing with um, workplace conflict more lately is trying to shift out of that sort of who's right and who's wrong model and getting more at interests. So we talked a, a little bit about interest-based negotiation. And so the work that I've been doing lately is more around either you call it workplace mediation or facilitation. Depending what's happened, it might be workplace restoration. You know, and to those that practice in this area, all of those words kind of mean something a little bit different. But really to the to the public that might be wondering how they can use this as a tool, it's really all at that front end around trying to solve things before they escalate. This is how I'm kind of working on workplace facilitation or workplace restoration mm. now. So I hope that answers your question about conflict management in the workplace. I just want to remind our listeners, because I know they've listened to every episode. I just want to remind them of another episode we had earlier um, where interest-based negotiation came up. An example that was used was, so we, we both want an orange. Mm. And so you're fighting about the orange. I think this is like a classic example that probably gets repeated all the time when talking about interest-based because it illustrates it well. So maybe, maybe one person wants the orange because they want to eat the fruit while the other person wants the orange because they want to use the zest to make cookies or something like that. Um, the point being, sometimes we assume that the conflict really is just, we both want the exact same thing and, and there's not enough to go around. And so it's, it's a zero sum game. It's if I win, you lose, if you lose, if you win, I lose. But I think what, uh, and I'd love to hear your experience about this, Paulette is somebody who's, who's focused on interest-based negotiation. But I, I think the hope is that when you really start digging into the interests that what appears on the surface to be, um, what can only be a win-lose situation. Once you dig deeper, then you find out that the interests aren't necessarily uh, totally opposed in that way. I don't know what do you, what do you tell us. Like that's that's the theory about it. I've read plenty of theory about it. And I've I've done I've I've been involved a little bit, but I would love to hear from someone that's had the experience like you have, of how does it work in practice. I love that example. I use that example all the time, um, whether I'm, you know, with clients and doing like workplace work, like workplace facilitation work, or whether I'm teaching, because it really, I think, captures the idea of what interest-based approach is all about. And Kim, I'm fascinated by your story about the um, avoiding, and you specifically said you don't want to forgive them. And like, my brain is just working on that. And it goes to your point, Evan, I wonder why, I wonder what happened. I wonder what is, what need is getting met in that situation of 
not forgiving that person. There's, there's something happening there. And maybe that other person, maybe they're getting something out of, oh yeah, that Kim, like that maybe they need something to push off of, or, or maybe, maybe they have no idea how irritated you are. And maybe they, maybe they are completely oblivious and they don't even know that something happened. And so that's one of the things that I really like about the interest-based approach is it shifts the way we think about communication. Another example that I use, um, it's classic, but it helps to, I think, explain how interest-based thinking is different is it's the example of the iceberg, right? The communication that we see is that part of the iceberg that's above the water, right? So um, I'm in the workplace, I'm not getting along with my new supervisor, I've been here for 10 years, I'm a pro, I run the show. This new import is, um, they don't know anything, they're brand new, they come from a different part of the company and they just don't get me. That's the part that's above the, the water. But below the water is my feeling of insecurity. You know, everything that's going on in the job market these days, is my job actually secure? If I lose my job, I've been here for 10 years. Am I marketable? Am I going to be able to go somewhere else? The markets are down. I can't retire. Like all of that other stuff that I don't necessarily want to talk about. Mm-hmm. So the the interest-based approach really gets at sort of opening up that conversation. And once you can do that, then you start to talk about solutions. Now we're actually talking about solving what is really the problem, right? I want to make cookies. I need the zest. I'm hungry and want a snack. I want the orange. But if we're at that place, we're just fighting over rights, it's my turn to get the orange, then you're not going to get at those other issues. Paulette, have you ever heard of, um, I guess, I think it's just an adage or something, but uh, like sometimes you might need to ask the question why, I don't know if it's five or seven times before you can really get, and I'm thinking about that iceberg, right? Like get deep enough to really get a sense of what, <laughs> what's going on underwater, right? You know, it's so funny. So I was just in a course this morning helping oh. to do some coaching <laughs> and I wrote this. Uh-huh. If you had that, uh-huh. what would that give you? Oh. <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> but I think that's exactly what you're referring to, is you start out with what you think is the obvious answer. And we see, I don't know about you, but my clients often come to me thinking they know exactly what they want. Yeah. And the more I go around it with them and go deeper and go deeper and then go deeper. You got to find different ways of asking that question. Otherwise it gets kind of tedious, yeah. but yeah, you really start to get at that iceberg and, and what's that part below the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, peel the layers of the onion away. Totally. So here's an obvious, here's an obvious question for probably lawyers, but maybe not for everybody else who doesn't deal with conflict all, like all the time. Is it important to solve a conflict? Like, is that what we're always trying to get to, to like recognize the conflict, 
and work through the conflict versus sitting in the conflict? <laughs> mm, that is a great question. Um, Evan, Heather, did you want to riff on that a bit before I share my thoughts? Well, you know what? I think I have a similar question, Kim, that I scribbled down, which is how or when does an employer or employee employee know when a conflict needs to be addressed, right? Like maybe it can just be an ostrich in the sand, right? Why not? Let's just do that. <laughs> I, <laughs> Let's just pretend I, that that's a thing. Let's <laughs> just do that. I think about it. <laughs> I, I immediately thought about it in this context, Heather, uh, and we were talking about um, a colleague on another side of a collaborative file that has been challenging for you. And I certainly have had lawyers on the other side of files I've been on that are just like the worst to deal with. And um, there's because of the nature of that relationship. And obviously that's not in the same workplace, but they're still kind of in a way, they're still colleagues that you work with. And so in that, like, I'm, it would be pointless to try and get to the bottom of like, why this person is so prickly. I just have to learn to work with them in the way that they are. And just like, okay, they're kind of a known entity They're This is the way they are. And so then I have to deal with this file in a certain way because this person sucks. So, I mean, I think sometimes, uh, and that may, even if you're in the same, in the same company, if you're like distant enough, you're not seeing each other and the conflict isn't such that it's like personal, mm-hmm. um, where you dread going to work or something like that, then some, maybe sometimes the answer is, eh, just, just deal with it. But probably not most of the time, like if it's a conflict worth talking about, I don't think that is, that's the right answer, but you know, sometimes it's like, you know, there's just conflicts that there are clashes where you're like, okay, I just don't really like this person. I don't need to deal with them very often. And so I'm just going to make it work for the time I have to. Absolutely. That's totally a style. Um, I can't, I can't help myself. I'm going to jump in. Heather, did you say you had another question or a comment? No. Okay. So um, I think sometimes, you know, life is transactional, right? If I'm dealing with somebody in the grocery store and they're kind of being belligerent or whatever, and I never have to go back and the likelihood of seeing that person is like practically zero, I'm probably just going to walk away. Right. But if I'm in a situation where I am likely to encounter that person repeatedly, then I've got to start making some choices. And whether it's actually a conflict or not, Uh, We can get into some pretty academic, theoretical discussion. Um, I try to take a bit more of a practical approach to it. And I ask very simply, is it serving my energy? Mm. And that's what I ask my clients, Mm. right? If you're going into a situation every day, whether it's um, a supplier that you've got to work with, um, a report, um, you know, a, a supervisor, Is it serving your energy? And if your energy is completely settled with that and you are able to be transparent with yourself and say, yeah, I'm okay with that, then turn the page and move on. Right. My experience is that's often not what's actually happening. There's a lot more kind of white knuckling, like holding onto the edge of your desk. I'm fine. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm going to be okay. <laughs> and you're not, right? And if we're really true with ourselves, when you pull back and start to think about how much energy it takes to pretend that you're fine when you're not fine, it adds up. And that with some support, maybe I do a lot of work in conflict coaching. Like, so helping people to be ready to move into that conversation. Sometimes people are astounded to realize how little energy it actually takes to say, hey, Bob in accounting, can we just go for a cup of coffee and can we just clear the air on some stuff? And Ooh. you say to Bob in accounting, hey, you know how every day you call me one of the girls? It really kind of rubs me the wrong way. And Bob says, I had no idea. I am so glad you told me. And that energy is now cleared, right? So that's kind of a long answer. I, I don't know, Kim, did I actually hit on what it was you were getting at? Yeah, I think, you know, to me, the energy point was, was, I think, everything. Like, we have energy and choices in our life, right? Like, what choice do we want to make? We can make things easier on ourselves or harder. Um, and sometimes you have to tread into the unknowns to solve a problem. And I think that's maybe one of the barriers to, to working through a conflict is, is jumping into an unknown to get to get the energy that, that you are looking for out of life. So, um, so probably five minutes of courage that everybody needs to address a conflict. And then you come up the other end, um, probably better off sitting in a conflict, probably not, <laughs> if you had a choice, probably not the best choice if you can work through it. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of really great um, sort of workshop type um, training that you can do or people that you can access that can like really in the space of like an hour or a couple of hours work you through some of those basic um, approaches that help get you skilled up to where you can can deal with those things the only thing that i would add is on an organizational level sometimes organizations struggle to recognize when there's a problem and the cost at the organizational level can be very high. Like there can be direct costs that are associated with workplace conflict. I mean, we've, we've all worked in these places, right? There's high turnover. Um, so you're actually replacing people. Um, you might be paying out severance to get rid of somebody. Somebody might have filed a complaint. So you're actually having to pay off that to get a settlement to resolve that. Um, and then there's just the legal costs that can go with um, a company having to deal with all of that. And then there's the indirect costs, right? People are taking uh, sick leave. Uh, their ability to focus is down. There's something called, um, well, absenteeism. You all know what that is when you're not actually present at work. But there's also um, a new phrase that I really like called presentism where everybody's there, but you can't actually focus. And so productivity goes down because there's this distraction, right, of all that simmering conflict. So um, it's a bit nuanced, but I think people that are sound leaders 
have got a pretty good instinct for when that kind of conflict is rising to the to the level of dysfunction on a team. So how valuable is company culture? Because I imagine like there's a great cost for managers. I mean, a lot of people aren't bringing up conflict to their managers for various reasons, but culture is eroding over time. And like, to me, like, I think the fabric of a, a company culture takes so long to build, but it's so quickly and easily destroyed. Um, it, like, you know, you think that managers would be doing everything they can to uncover conflict so they can work through that. But I'm curious what your thoughts are on that, um, that dynamic. It's, that's a fascinating question. And my husband is actually um, um, an instructor in organizational behavior. And so he and I are often comparing notes on that exact question and looking at different industries and different geographies um, because culture can really shift depending on where you are. Um, and some companies are very sensitive to that and absolutely want to generate a culture that is um, open, responsive, uh, that, that feels sort of energized. And other companies are not as concerned for whatever reason. They're more um, often more hierarchical, uh, older. And so have, they've got things that have, we've always done it this way. And so in those organizations, sometimes what you see is you don't actually get into dealing with conflict until the complaints are starting, the harassment complaint, the um, somebody needs to be let go. And so they're being paid out or they're terminated for cause, but then they challenge the cause and that's in litigation for four years or there's human rights complaints. And then sometimes you're seeing those organizations going, Holy Hannah, this is expensive. I sure wish there was something that we could do. And I'll go, you know, <laughs> there is actually a lot that you can do. So it can go both ways. I'd imagine there is a, a fair number of businesses that have a bit of a split of those two personalities too at various levels that some folks would be a little more sensitive and others wouldn't be have maybe differing visions, I guess, for, for that kind of thing. And that in itself might be a point of <laughs> conflict or disagreement or clashing, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I get calls from organizations, like from all corners and all sizes and all departments, frankly, I, I often connect with HR because usually they're the ones that are dealing with these kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. um, but like, I've got lots of people that will call me and even just say, like, I'm not even sure if this is the kind of thing that you help with or not. Um, Not-for-profit organizations, we get a lot of those kinds of conversations as well. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's at the upper level of an organization. I get calls coming out of the C-suite um, and I get a lot of people just on the front line that start out just kind of complaining. Um, and then, you know, again, that's sometimes just conflict coaching and I can help to give them a bit of skill to, you know, say what needs to be said. And then they're able to resolve stuff at that early, early stage. I, I wonder as well, how much of it is, uh, we as people hate change. And if somebody's starting to say, Hey, there's, I think there might be a problem here. 
the person in charge of, of that may not be too excited about a admitting that there's a problem, um, because that might be a reflection on them personally and B having to deal with having to change whatever needs to be done to, to fix the problem. I don't know. Does that, do you think that plays into it very much, Paulette? Oh, I absolutely do. hundred percent. I mean, we're seeing a lot of that right now, right? With um, the return to work. And some people absolutely can't wait to be back in the office. They've been in the office the whole time. Um, and then other people are like, you can't pay me enough. It just, you just can't convince me to go back. And I don't think I need to go back. I think I can do my job beautifully, remotely. I've been doing it for two years. Productivity is up. My personal productivity is up. I'm sleeping better. I'm spending time with my family. And then you might have a boss or a supervisor that says, nope, I absolutely 100% want everybody back in the office. And so then there are choices to be made. Is that a, somebody is right, somebody is wrong? Is that a reluctance to change? Is that just, I don't know what change might look like, right? Yeah, so it can definitely get very, very uncomfortable. A huge part of what I do is just sitting with people and helping hold space as they have that feeling of being deeply uncomfortable. So is that like uh, group therapy, sort of like everybody sits around the, the the kitchen table in the office and like chats it out? What is what does it look like to work through a problem? I love that question. Um, and in my world, if I could be the queen of everything, everybody would absolutely sit around either the kitchen table or a campfire. <laughs> I think that's like, just let your hair down and just, we're starting to talk about what's below the surface of the water, right? Um, but that's just not the way the real world works. And I get that. Not everybody is comfortable with that. So what usually happens is um, I get a phone call from somebody and if they're complaining, then I will usually say, you need to figure out if you actually want to do something about this or if you just want to be heard. And if you just want to be heard, I've got time for that. I do a free 30-minute intake, a consult, and then we're done and we're off the clock. Mm -hmm. um, but if you actually want to move forward, I will ask usually three key questions. Who's involved? How long has it been going on? And what is the prospect of the organization, or what is the organization's likely response? Hmm. Okay, because sometimes the answer I get on the third one is, well, we really just want to check the box of saying we brought you in before we fire this person. And I'll say, that's great to know. I've got lots of my colleagues that I can refer you to Be, because that's what they're looking for. And that's great. Those aren't the conversations I want to have. Hmm. I want people that want to talk about what options are and what organizational change might look like. So that's the first call. From there, I will usually have one-on-one um, -on -one private calls with the people that are involved. And in those calls, I'm really listening to hear um, what's below the surface. 
And I'm also checking out some of the issues that Evan referred to about power and how is that at play. And I'm really assessing also for um, safety and legal issues. And if there is a whole host of legal, like clear legal problems, I will usually refer them to legal counsel to get some legal opinions. Because if, if you've got that in the way, it's pretty hard to talk around. You know, I think my executive director is stealing money. You got to deal with that. You got to have money to make payroll sitting around talking about it is not going to solve that problem. Um, After I've had those private conversations, then I will usually structure some kind of a, um, a sit around and chat. But a sit around and chat with me is not just a sit around and let's bits about our latest you know butter butter tart recipes like it's okay and if you had that what would that give you and if you got that thing what would that give you like you i prepare the parties to show up to actually talk about what's on their mind Mm -hmm. And I've had quite a few people say to me that without the support of having a third party there, they don't think that they would have been able to get into those conversations. So it it is a sit around the kitchen table, but it's, it's a pretty heavy one. I think that I feel like that preparation element is really important too, because it's not just you getting to the iceberg. It's helping each person at the table understand their iceberg, right? Um, And if they can think about that maybe ahead of time in a bit of a neutral space or in their own safe space, then I'm sure those meetings go a lot better um, if if they've got that preparation. Yeah, absolutely. Like we were chatting a little bit about before we went in to this topic about some different forms of um, litigation or collaborative law. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Part of what can happen in those formalized processes is that somebody else takes over the conflict, right? Like if the employer has hired a lawyer, the the lawyer is really the one driving the response to the complaint, for example. Or, you know, if a grievance has been filed, then the union owns the grievance and the union is driving the process. Mm Whereas the kind of conversations that I'm talking about where we're talking about facilitation or restoration, it's really driven by the parties themselves. And it's that sense of really wanting to shift the conversation and and getting into um, a little bit of ownership. And some transparency, we sometimes talk about shifting out of the drama triangle from the villain, the hero, pardon me, the, the villain, the hero, and the victim, right, into a model that is actual accountability, productivity. Yeah, I've been pretty snippy and kind of sharp and, yeah, a bit juvenile. And, you know, I've got a bunch of reasons why. Um, and I can take my ownership of that. and hear you and what's going on for you and I'm ready to make a plan moving forward. 
They're fun. They're fun conversations. They're fun for me. Lots of people say, oh my God, are you kidding me? Like I just, I was like pulling out my fingernails. Like it's a special brand of torture. Right, right. It It does sound like a lot. And so why deal with it? Maybe it'll just go away. Don't you hope? I don't know. So my experience is, and you guys have heard me say this before, a conflict avoided is a conflict repeated because you start to run that path, right? Uh, You know, I had that run-in with Bob in accounting. Bob in accounting, I pick on him all the time. (laughs) He's a jerk. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, there's good reasons. Right, exactly. We could totally talk him up. He's a loop and he's a different generation. He just doesn't get me and he's sexist and all this stuff. Bob in accounting is terrible. Here's the thing. If I never show up in that conversation and say to Bob in accounting, you know... I'm pretty uncomfortable here. And I would prefer if we have a conversation like this. How fair is that to Bob? I'm talking about Bob, but I'm not actually talking to him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some people, they, they're in a position or they're in a role in their life and that serves them for whatever reason. They are not interested in moving on. They don't want to figure out why somebody else wants the orange. All they know is it's their turn. They want all the orange and you can go pound sand. Okay. Those people are probably not going to move very far in a conversation. So that's part of what I assess for in those early conversations is if there is a realistic prospect of um, having some movement in the conversation. But those situations are far more rare than you would think because the interests that drive us are universal. They're things like freedom, right? Heard anything about freedom in the news in the last year? <laughs> uh, oh, that's a bit of a, yeah, it's almost an F word, Paula. <laughs> well, I know, right? But yeah. like, there's a lot yeah. going, but at its core, we are all interested in freedom, uh-huh. independence, autonomy, yeah. safety, accountability, like those deeper respect. Uh is another one. Very rarely am I going to get into a conversation with somebody and bring up some really hard stuff and they're going to say to my face, I don't care if you feel respected. Uh Some will, for sure. I've met them in the courtroom. Uh And sometimes that's why you've got to litigate. But 99% of the time, they're going to say, wow, I didn't know. And thanks. And I think especially as we move forward, There are a lot of really challenging issues on the table these days, right? Um, Racism, right? Like like it's it's front and center. Uh, Truth and reconciliation, right? Like we're talking about these things. They're happening. Um, Sexism, misogyny, the whole Johnny Depp, Amber Heard trial. Mm -hmm. Is that just a Hollywood drama? Is it a reflection of culture? I don't know. There's a lot going on there. Yeah. And if we can get to those core values, that's been my experience where we can find that real common ground and we can start to have meaningful conversations. And in the workplace, there's so much benefit to clearing the air so people can put their attention on what they're there to do. Yeah. 
Yeah, it goes back to that energy thing, right? If you're burning up <laughs> a whole bunch of your energy because of Bob in the morning, um, you're not getting your job done probably as well as you'd like to. You're going to have low work satisfaction. It's it's a bit of a spiral, isn't it? So I guess it probably doesn't just go away. <laughs> uh, no, maybe it will. Maybe. <laughs> Bob's got to retire one of these days. I was going to say, sometimes Bob just goes away. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Sometimes they do just go away. Retirements happen for sure. And that is, that is a way of solving some problems. Um, but if it's the only way that we solve problems, it can take a long time. Mm-hmm. Probably not good, good governance. Um, moving, yeah. shifting the problem, hoping it'll go away. <laughs> well, and imagine what happens, right? We get into conflict often we really get into conflict because things matter to us, right? Like, so take a a team that's working on a project and they're, um, they're falling behind on the timelines. And so everybody's getting chippy, everybody's tired, right? Everybody's, "Ah, I'm not going to get to see my kids and it's the school play or, you know, I really want to go to this baseball game, right? Everybody is, "Ah, why? What's behind that? Or what's underneath of that? Probably things like, um the team reputation the team typically does really good work and puts out really good deliverables and so they're feeling like that is um in jeopardy Mm -hmm. or maybe if they don't put out um or meet by these deadlines then uh, maybe funding is at risk so maybe there's a security question there and so when we can find ways to stop talking about each other and find ways to start to clear the air. You get into a lot of the stuff that Brené Brown talks about, about creativity and team building. Like you have deep generative conversations about solutions that are coming at problems from very different angles. You're, I find that you're a unique guest of ours, Paulette, because you're you're the only guest we've had that has posed questions and wanted to hear the answer from each one of us. And you've done it numerous times, which makes me feel good because I think it comes back to like people want to be heard. And, you know, I was thinking earlier, why would we want a third party in the room to help us solve a conflict? And at first I was thinking maybe we need a referee and I was and then I kind of shifted And I'm thinking, no, we just want somebody to hear us out. And maybe that just organically creates a solution to the problem. I don't know. Is that, is that a thing where people just want to say their bit and then the problems get solved? The desire to be heard is one of the number one factors at play in relationships, in all relationships marriage relationships, parenting, schools, um, workplaces. And it goes to that deep sense of autonomy. If you hear me, you see me. And inherently, you value me. And there's a whole bunch of science behind that. Um, 
and, and I, I absolutely love neuroscience, like the, the reptilian brain and then, you know, the mammalian brain and then the, yeah. And so but suffice to say, when we hear each other, that reptilian fight or flight response is settled and we feel safe. And then you can start to access some of those higher level brain functions like creativity. Oh, how can I get this client deliverable on time? If you're too busy being all afraid that, oh, you know, I got to run away. You're not accessing that higher brain function. So that's just to start to touch on some of that. Heather knows I like yeah science and the medical stuff from when we work together <laughs> I, I i'm very interested in it too i i just attended some training earlier this week and um there was someone there who'd done the harvard negotiation course and he was sharing some information about the fbi and apparently they used to be very aggressive um, with terrorists or kidnapping situations and they would just basically try and wait them out till they could shoot them but uh victims uh innocent victims were getting harmed the public wasn't super happy about just this idea of shooting them so um they developed a new method that's been successful but what it boils down to is being understood it's connecting with that person on a personal level and not necessarily agreeing with them or accepting their demands but just reflecting back that they see them as a human being and understand where they're coming from which was I, I mean it just I think I could hear that over and over and over again and it would still floor me a little bit <laughs> each time um just how basic like you said and fundamental that need is absolutely sorry go ahead Evan I love uh, the way Stephen R. Covey talks about it. One of the habits of highly effective people is seek first to understand and then to be understood. And he's driving at the same point, which is, well, he references um, some Greek philosopher, I can't remember which one, who had this potential student come up to him and say, you know, I want to learn. And then he, the, the story goes, he, he like kind of drowns him like pushes his face underwater. And then, you know, when he lets him up and the guy's gasping for air, he says, you know, when you want to learn as badly as you wanted air, then you don't need a teacher. Mm -hmm. And he uses that point to say, cause he, then he uses this phrase of giving somebody, you know, emotional air, I think something like that. But the, the idea being that when, when you can't breathe, None of your other needs are important. It doesn't matter that you're homeless if you can't breathe. Your, your need is you need air. And so when you have an issue, a conflict, um, you can't even focus on the other person um, until you feel heard. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, that's somebody has to be the listener first in order for that to work. And so, you know, the, the point is we, we, whoever's hearing this, we have to be the ones that recognize that that's a really valuable principle to really let somebody be heard. And it's not just like they get to talk. That's not what it is. And I, that's not what Paulette or Heather, you guys are saying at all. It's that not only do they get to say their thing, but that you're able to communicate to them 
the point they're trying to get across so that they feel understood. So they really feel like you're validating them. You're taking the time to see it from their perspective. And only when you get to that point, is that person ready to listen to what you have to say? Right. Um, I've definitely seen that play out in my life in conflict as a lawyer and just in, in general life that, uh, in myself too, where sometimes you are the person that really needs to be heard because of whatever pain or emotional discomfort or whatever you're having, where you need to get something off your chest and you just need to be heard. But after you kind of get that out there and somebody hears you, then you're like, you calm down. And then you're like, Oh, okay. And now I can hear your side. And, and, and there's not, you don't feel threatened, I think, as part of what it is. You don't feel threatened that, like, your position is going to be devalued or not not heard. Yeah, absolutely. This, this what we're talking about right now, is one of my favorite parts of this whole process. And, and I've, I've had several people say to me, so why do I always have to be the one listening? Right? Like, especially if they feel they've been aggrieved for a long time. Why does it always have to be me? Um, and sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But the thing is, is when, when we are able to listen, it's like you give the other person capacity, right? Think of two cups. And my cup, because I'm not the triggered person, I'm the skilled person, is less full. So there's more room in it. The other person, they're hot. They've got something that needs to be said. And as I listen, and I mean deeply listen, truly listen, not just I'm holding my tongue till it's my turn to talk. Not planning your rebuttal. Yeah, no, but actually listening, what's happening is that person's cup, they're pouring it into my cup and I'm holding it. Then their cup has suddenly got room. And then when it's my turn, I, I also have to show up and have to share what's on my mind because now I've created that bond, right? And if I just pretend, oh, no, I'm fine, we're not actually going to get that meaningful reciprocity. reciprocity. But if I've listened, I'm probably feeling pretty good that maybe I'll be a little bit vulnerable. Maybe I'll tip a little bit back into their cup and in the fullness of time we now have got our energy down here and we can listen actively back and forth to one another and so, and so to your point um kim about what why a facilitator or somebody a third party in the room might help with that when everybody comes in hot it can be hard to do that sharing right Who's involved? How long has this been going on? You know, I've been PO'd at Bob in accounting for two years. I'm probably not going to be very good just sitting down in a room with him and shooting the breeze. Or, you know, maybe something happened at the Christmas party. And it's, it's more than just I'm a little chafed at Bob in accounting, but I haven't spoken up yet, right? Bringing a, a neutral person in what that can do is hold the process. And so I will talk about things like, how are we going to talk to each other? How are you going to talk to each other? 
I usually only have one row up. One person talks at a time. Because if you're talking, hard to listen. Right? So one person talks at a time. People will often say things like, well, what about no yelling? Or I don't think there should be any swearing. If that is something that people need to feel safe, okay, let's put it on the table. But from my perspective, if people are starting to get animated, that means we're getting close. We're talking about what's really on our mind. I'm saying that Bob and accounting is the problem, but you know what my real problem is? I've got too much F and work that I can't get done in a day and nobody is hearing me. Right? So you know, now like Bob's just loafing. He doesn't right? care about anything. <laughs> now you're hearing what's right, like we're below the, the surface of the water. Right? So yeah, I, I like that process of helping each other out to, to share the, the energetic load. Uh, I like your point of that the reason that we have conflict is because people care. Because if you don't care, then you probably just, there wouldn't be conflict. It's like, eh, it's not worth it to me to put in any kind of energy to fight with you about this. But if there's conflict, that in a way, that's a good sign for the organization in that you have two people who, or more, that care about something enough that they're not just going to do whatever just to keep the peace. Yep, absolutely. I love that you're normalizing emotion as part of the process as well. Um, Because I think workplaces, you know, boardrooms, uh, law, (laughs) um, emotion isn't typically invited as part of the process, but it's, it's part of that caring. It's part of what's underneath all of that. Um, So I, yeah, I really like that you... You're, you're willing to welcome that into the room and accept it and work through it as a sign of, of progress, actually, in a way. It absolutely is. And that's a really great point, Heather. Um, and it's not one that I've come to easily, honestly. Um, all the years in law, like I pretty much the talking head, like I existed from here up. All of the rest all the feelings, the stuff in my body. Nope, no place for that at all, especially as a woman. Mm-hmm. Because no way, no way was I going to let them see me be weak. Yeah. Right? Let them see or me hysterical. <laughs> Not a chance. Uh-huh. Um, and it takes, I'm not gonna lie. It's taken me a long, long time to start to unpackage that. And a lot of people are still deeply uncomfortable. They don't want to use the word feeling. And you ask about feelings. Well, let me ask you guys what, if I ask about feelings, what words come to mind? What feelings do you know and have? All of them. (laughs) All of them. Good, good. Throw some words out. So, so they say anger's a secondary emotion. So underneath anger, there's usually like sadness, humiliation, shame, guilt, oh, happy, fear. Yeah. Bravo. Evan, what have you got? Kim just <laughs> took them all. No, no, there's more. There's more. So, so now I feel jealous and uh, <laughs> envy. En- yeah, envious, 
Nice. Uh, my personal worth is coming to question. Oh, good self-doubt. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Usually when I ask that question, I get three things. Can you guess what they are? Happy, sad. Mad. Sad, mad, and glad. Right? Those are the three feelings that three most sisters. people go to. And that's it. So I love that when, when we can start to expand the vocabulary, we expand the reality. Uh, right? And as we do that, suddenly, oh, wow, I'm feeling jealous. I'm feeling envious. I'm feeling, I'm not just feeling mad. I am furious and you know depending on where we come from gender can start to play a role right heather you threw out hysterical uh -huh. man a lot of women over the years have been called hysterical uh -huh. were they hysterical or were they hot footing furious <laughs> right but yeah. those are those are big experiences for us to have and sometimes they can be very uncomfortable to be around but again there's a whole body of science that says if you can sit with a feeling for 60 to 90 seconds without perpetuating the cycle it will pass mm -hmm. But really feeling it, right? Not fighting it, not like, oh, I'm feeling anxious. Oh, oh, I'm feeling anxious and pushing yeah. it down, but like sitting in it, right? Feeling it in your body. Yeah. Observing it. Yeah, exactly. Right. Not the, um, I'm afraid. Okay. So I'm going to think about something that makes me feel confident. Yeah. Maybe you need that depending on where you're at in your journey. I deal with a lot of people that um, have got trauma and trauma, trauma responses, whether that's, um, you know, first responders or veterans or um, people depending on um, what their childhood experiences are. Mm -hmm. And so the word that I use there is titrate. Like mm. maybe when that feeling comes up, mm. they have to go to, mm. and I feel confident when I think of this. Mm. And maybe they can think about it for a microsecond. Right. And so their work is to feel it for a second. Mm. And then five seconds. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm very cognizant of the fact that a lot of that is very much the realm of psychotherapy. And I am not a therapist. Mm. So I definitely have a scope, mm. a boundary there. But I do know how those things can show up in, and impact and influence how somebody behaves in conflict. And so I can support that because I can often see it coming down the road. Um, but yeah, feelings. I've, I've started a, a list and I, I think I'm up to about 67 words on my feeling list. I'm pretty proud of that. <laughs> is a high conflict person then somebody who, who just doesn't, isn't able to recognize their emotions and sit in them? So they are, you know, bumping up against people all the time or like, like there are people in this world who just don't get along well with others. Like, who are those people? And, and, and how do we, how do we know who they are? You want, you want names? Like, yeah, I was going to say a lot of them are lawyers. <laughs> I've got a couple names. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's like a kid, but it's true. I was really surprised when I started to do this work, how people that are specialists in the industry, lawyers are specialists in the industry of conflict, 
actually they're specialists in the industry of disputes right so that's mm-hmm. what a conflict has settled into positions mm-hmm. but they most lawyers don't actually know a lot about conflict or resolving conflict outside of a formal process because a lot of them like me would go to that formal structure to as a surrogate or you know as a tool so as not to have to deal with things um but to your question kim there are a lot of different personalities um most everybody i deal with knows like there's something going on emotionally for them that's within the that doesn't fall within a diagnosis in the dsm-5 right um but are there some hundred percent and you, you, in that case, like the diagnosable narcissistic personality disorder is somebody I am not going to bring into the mediation room. That's, I'm, not, I'm just not going to move that. As a kind of aside on that, um, Bill Eddy, I think I've talked his virtues before. He runs the High Conflict Institute. If you're dealing with a cluster B or a high conflict person, um, he does have a lot of tools on his website. But um, yeah, they can be very, very, can be very difficult to, um, you use different tools to address conflict with someone who is suffering or is is on that scale I guess or in that area of high conflict personality disorders those kind of things yeah well we were talking a bit about collaborative processes compared to litigation um in my experience that cluster b personality trait is not going to be effective in collaborative process it's litigation it's hard deadlines it's Mm -hmm structure it's Mm -hmm. getting a judge or a justice to give a decision like there's just that's yeah i've had no success in mediation in that that you guys can't just say cluster b as if we all know what you're talking about it's it's the per, some of the personality disorders in the DSM-4, which is the psychological diagnostic manual that um, psychologists or psychiatrists would be using to formally diagnose someone with a mental health or a mental illness, a mental illness. Yeah, it's, it's that point where crossing over or where sadness, geez, I've had a rough day and I'm sad, crosses over to diagnosable major depressive disorder. Mm-hmm. which a, a psychiat- psychologist or a psychiatrist would identify in the DSM. Mm-hmm. And right. the, the cluster B are like narcissistic personality disorder, um, borderline personality disorder. And I feel like I'm missing one, but. Uh, yeah, the one that okay. I. You can miss them because we're not, we're, none of us are psychologists I'm here. I'm not a psychologist. That's right. That's right. <laughs> okay. You don't have to have all the answers. But okay. No, that's good. Because I, I just wanted a little, I, I kind of gathered from the context that this cluster B person was not somebody that would be very pleasant to deal with, but uh, yeah. yeah, good to know. Yeah. And they may be, they're probably screened out for you, Paulette, maybe in that early stage, right? What does the organization intend to do, uh, right? They may be the person that the relationship isn't going to continue. Um, Yeah. 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 And and that may be a situation where like often that'll have pretty bright red flags on it for pure legal issues. And yeah, then I will just refer to litigation counsel. Uh-huh. Deal with that, or to give opinions uh-huh. on that. 
And I guess I want to also have a disclaimer that not everybody who has a cluster B personality disorder is difficult to work with or difficult in all situations. Um, but if someone is in that realm and is under severe stress and has a difficult situation, it may be bringing out elements of their personality that are going to make conflict management difficult. So yeah. um, I don't want to sound like I'm I, I bemoaning met, or criticizing anyone for having any of those diagnoses or disorders. I don't know about your experience, Heather or Paulette, but in my experience, uh, a, a lot of my family law clients claim that the other, their former partner is a narcissist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a word that's picked up a lot of attention in the media lately. Yeah. True classic like diagnosable narcissistic personality disorder is very different than just difficult. Yeah. Like it crosses a line into like beyond unreasonable. I'm sure in your family law practice, you have probably actually dealt with some true narcissism. Um, but when, when you lock horns with it, there is no mistaking it for something else. Mm. In my experience, I, again, I'm not as thick. Yeah. I think sometimes it just gets thrown around to say like this other person is selfish and, and just wants what they want and can't think of the greater good. But I obviously do think of the greater good. Yeah. That sounds like a conflict resolution conversation. <laughs> what are the interests? What's actually going on below the surface on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, cause I've learned all about, conflict resolution, actually going back to high school, I was, I joined this club called peer helpers. I don't know if I've mentioned this before. I feel like I probably have, <laughs> but peer helpers, I did it because a girls that I liked were in this peer helpers group. Mm, classic. Yep. B there was this like fun uh, retreat they did every year. That was cool. And that was pretty much it. So that's why I joined, but I learned, but I learned, uh, I learned a lot from those teachers that taught us these things. And, and, you know, that's where I learned about active listening techniques and stuff like that. And, uh, even in law school, I think, I feel like I did, I don't know, I feel like I did something. And, and when I was, uh, when I was articling, uh, you know, my principal was, was very much like, okay, we're going into negotiation we're, we want to try an interest-based approach. And I'm thinking about my practice right now. And I'm wondering like, okay, Am I, am I looking for opportunities to really do interest-based negotiation? And I don't know, most of the negotiations that I participate in are not that way. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, do you have any, like, do you have any tips for somebody who wants to negotiate that way, but the, uh, the other side isn't aware of it, doesn't know what it's about, like, is it possible to kind of foist it on them without them realizing that you're doing it and to have an effective experience? I don't know. I seem to. Um, if the other side, so I was kind of surprised when I got into this area. I thought I knew quite a bit about negotiation. And I think as lawyers, um, and Kim, I would think probably in your business as well, um, you do in the sense of, you do understand or have a lot of experience in negotiation in terms of positions, right? Like think of the classic, I wanna buy a car, right? So somebody's selling the car, I wanna buy the car. Um, 
I'm interested in the lowest price. They're interested in the highest price. You got to work really, really hard to shift that from a positional negotiation into an interest-based negotiation. Like you got to, and the other side has got to be really interested. Like, are you now talking about maybe um, reputation and referral? Um, can you throw in some kind of a, um, like a warranty package or some kind of an upgrade? But there's not a whole lot of room in that. And depending on where we're at in our files as lawyers, sometimes there's not a lot of room, right? Like if we're in litigation, we're often speaking, and I'll speak of civil litigation, not family, because I've, I've never done that. But civil litigation comes down to money. I have said to many, many, many clients that money is the language of the courts because they talk about damages, all of our different heads of damages. There's no real room in there for the feel-good Kind of like maybe I can work in an apology um, with some of the stuff I've been doing in employment law. I can talk about letters of reference, maybe. I can get a little creative in some of the grievance stuff that I've been dealing with. But once you're into that pure litigation stream, it can be hard to shift into an interest-based negotiation unless you've said at the outset, you're doing more of a collaborative process. Now it might sound like I'm trying to sell you on collab, which I'm not, but when you're doing a collaborative process, at least the way that we've been structuring it in doing commercial matters and civil litigation matters is a conversation at the beginning of the file that says, we're contextualizing this as an interest-based negotiation and intentionally opening that up beyond just pure legal remedies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's, a, that's an important point, right? Because uh, um, if you're in the realm of, of legal remedies, there's, there, you know, that's a limited defined set of tools in that toolbox. Yeah. Whereas if, you know, if you're doing, if you're really trying to get down to the, the underlying um, interest, then, you know, the, the whole point of that, I understand, is that it opens the possibility of finding a solution that nobody had even considered before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think your ability to reach a resolution without the engagement of the other person is more limited, but there's nothing stopping you from exploring interests with your own client and your and the other person through your client. They likely have a good idea of what makes that person tick. And that might change how or how you present or structure an offer or, you know, do a negotiation. So I think to your answer, like, can you do it without the other person knowing or buying in? Like, I don't think you can do it as effectively, but I think you definitely can use it to make a, you know, sweeten a deal or restructure things or think creatively, um, even if the other person doesn't know that's what you're doing. And then to justify your offer to try and convince them um, 
of why why it's good, <laughs> why they should accept it. But anyway, I think we're straying a wee bit from the the workplace uh, the workplace conversation. Can, can but, I just jump, jump in on that? Yeah, of course. I was actually, thinking about that, Evan, yeah. as you and I were talking about um, sort of strict legal remedies uh, um, to bring it back into the workplace context. Yeah, I think that's one of the real powers of. Uh, or powerful uses of a, a more of a facilitative approach is you can do stuff beyond strict legal remedies. Right. Right. Like if I'm just talking pure, reasonable notice, severance, just cause, um, like those are pretty strong legal tests and, and walls. Human rights, is there discrimination? Or is there is it a protected area? Are there prohibited grounds? Is there an accommodation? Like there's very specific things that I can ask for and look at. Whereas if I'm doing a facilitative process, man, we can talk about who orders pencils. <laughs> like we can talk about how schedules are structured. Um, like, and those can be parts of legal remedies, but like it really throws things wide open um, and it can really shift the conversation to start to get at what do people need to feel well and to be productive uh -huh. yeah well we're uh we're on a strict deadline today and we're kind of out of time here but uh i think we covered a really good breadth of ground and depth um Workplace, if you're having a conflict at the workplace, um, find out what uh, processes your workplace has, what systems they have in place to deal with it and use it. And if you are the person that decides on that process, well, maybe you might want to give Paulette a call. <laughs> she might be able to help you out with that. Um, it can be very expensive to have a conflict derail uh, the, the working environment. Very expensive. Um, Kim, do you have anything, uh, anything else? I think we should have a, a national solve your conflict day to bring greater awareness to our conflicts and a day that we solve these things. Oh, oh can, can I please, can I please? Have you heard of conflict resolution day? No, it's the third Thursday in October every year. I think is that, I'm the, day when there's, is that the day when there's no crimes. No, <laughs> uh, but I'll, I'll send you a link specifically. It's a, it's a thing here in Alberta. It's tied into an international movement. It's all across the U.S. I'm actually on the committee that's planning Alberta's activities this year. Um, but yeah, we don't solve all the problems in one day, but spend the day actually talking about these types of skills and approaches and trying to bring awareness to this whole topic. Fabulous. I think I should get my entire office together in the boardroom on this day and say, like, what's our grievances and our problems? And let's, let's air it talk, out. Let's talk about them. Perfect. <laughs> oh, well, Paulette, it's been such a pleasure. This, uh, our time together has flown by. I feel like we're going to have a part three, maybe, because I feel like we could go so deep into all of oh. these topics. But thank you so much for your time and for being here. 
It is just um, a thrill and a delight. And I'm so pleased um, that you're bringing this tool to the public to start to demystify some of these things and to have these conversations. I'm really grateful for all of you for doing this and for inviting me to have this conversation. So thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. You're uh, almost halfway to the five-timer club. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. <laughs> Any information in this video is general information only and is not nor is it intended to be legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Mallorick Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Mallorick, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Mallorick, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, RJFE, a subsidiary of Raymond James Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. When providing life insurance products, financial advisors are acting as insurance representatives of RJFE. Darkness of the Dales dissipates, declines because